Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm joined here by my dear friend and co-host, Daniel Foch. Dan, how are you? And more importantly, before you answer that, where are you? Why do you have a blanket over your head? Explain yourself. Yeah. So my name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker by day, pillow fort architect by <laughs> night. I'm actually at a property that we own together or investing in together, I suppose, which is a flip deal out in Hamilton. We're in the middle of staging it because we're going to be bringing it back to market in a couple of days, hopefully. And you just decided to have fun and take a break from staging and build a pillow fort? <laughs> yeah. So I came out to help the staging team because I have a truck, you know, bring some furniture out and whatever. And I had to jump on and record this podcast real quick, but because it's a brand new house and there's literally no furniture in it, I whipped up an office out of Ikea furniture that was there. And and then I basically realized, or you realized, you're like, your audio is horrible. It's like so <laughs> echoey. So I had to eliminate that somehow. And I learned a trick from our podfathers who were showing us, I think, a picture of them traveling and basically created these pillow forts to dampen the sound. And, <laughs> and it seems to be working pretty well, hopefully. I hope my audio is pretty good here. Yeah. So acoustics. So if there's nothing in a room, the acoustics are just way, way off. But moving on from Dan and his architectural endeavors, we have got a great episode today. We are going to be talking about investing without owning real estate. So do you want to invest in real estate? Of course you do. That's why you're listening to this podcast. But what if I told you you could invest in real estate without dealing with tenants, contractors, permits, or any of the other challenges that come with traditional investing? So I would say that's impossible, Nick, because there's such a limited scope of investment <laughs> vehicles for Canadian real estate investors to get into product outside of direct investment. And the reality is that's probably true, right? I think there's 21 REITs publicly traded in Canada, which is probably, I think, the most accessible entry point for retail investors looking to put less than $100,000 into real estate. And then the next stop on the block would be private equity. And that's difficult because in a lot of cases, you need to be an accredited investor, right? I'll give you a list of sort of the most notable players in that space because a lot of people probably have seen these names. And if you haven't yet, you will. Now that I've mentioned them, they'll kind of be in your reticular activation system. And you'll often see them side by side with some of the biggest names in real estate development in the country. So that list would go something like Graybrook, Kingset, Forgestone, Fiera, Sandpiper Group, Roehampton Capital, King Mountain, most notably coming from the United States to join us, Blackstone, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So before we take this any further, I just want a quick refresher on a few terms there. So let's go over both REITs and private equity. So a REIT, which is R-E-I-T, is a real estate investment trust. That's a company that makes investments in income producing real estate assets. Investors who want to access real estate can, and in turn, buy shares of a REIT. And through that ownership, that share ownership, effectively add real estate owned by that same REIT to their investment portfolios. Now, private equity is a little different. Private equity real estate is a professionally managed fund that invests in real estate. However, unlike REITs, private equity real estate investing requires substantial amounts of capital and may only be available to high net worth individuals or accredited investors. 
Yeah. And so somewhere in between, I would say, direct investing and private equity, which is... So private equity is a fund. So you put all your money into this pool and the private equity entity get, kind of gets to control that, do buy and sell assets with that money as they so see fit. Beyond that, there's something called EMDs or exempt market dealers. And they're basically exempt from... Or they move products or securities that are exempt from certain things as outlined in registration requirements, exemption and ongoing registrant obligations, which is sort of like this securities regulation environment in Canada. They act in two primary capacities in the capital markets. One is a dealer or underwriter. So dealing like selling things for any securities that are exempt from the prospectus. And then also a dealer of securities such as like mutual funds that are qualified or exempt like pooled funds. So they're a vehicle to raise money for private equity. But one of the things that they often do and in, in this capacity is they'll actually fundraise on a deal by deal basis. So it's like semi-direct investing, let's call it. And you and I do things like this. We're not EMDs, but we're allowed to bring on partners to invest in deals with us. They just do it at a much bigger scale with a lot more zeros. So bigger projects and bigger checks. So tell me a little bit about our meeting with one of Canada's leaders in this space. So it's a gorgeous morning in Toronto. As Dan and I waited on the seventh floor in one of the large boardrooms at Greybrook Partners, we looked past the numerous awards on display and out the window to a beautiful view of Midtown Toronto. We had been invited by a listener of the podcast to come do a live interview with his boss, a man named Sasha Kakuz, the CEO and partner at Greybrook. Now, Greybrook invests and manages world-class real estate development projects that contribute to growth of thriving cities and deliver exceptional returns for investors. So Greybrook actively invests on behalf of individual and institutional investors in large-scale real estate developments. They play an active management role as a capital partner, collaborating alongside some of the biggest developers in Canada. Their growing North American investment portfolio includes more than 60 million square feet that they're going to be bringing onto market. Because remember, they're a developer. They don't just hold the asset. And that's all more core density. The estimated completion value of what they have in their pipeline right now is about $30 billion. And that includes wow. notably the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and Residences in Miami. So they're not just Canada bound. And 138 Yorkville, which is an ultra luxury residence and coupled with the society living platform, an innovative approach to purpose built class A multifamily living. So as we sat around and sipped our coffee and got our podcast stuff set up, in walks Sasha. Now Sasha's a tall, well-built guy. He grew up in Hamilton, went to York, played pro hockey for a few years and pretty much exudes confidence. The kind of person that can command a room. And when he speaks... You listen, because he probably has something good to say. So he spoke and we listened. And this is that interview. We hope you enjoy it. I really like the, and I'm going to be trying to do this throughout our conversation, is bring it back to kind of the small cap developer. That's a lot of our listeners, right? There are people with a few properties or just trying to get into the property. So I really like where you were going with the developer and the investor and that relationship, because that can be on a micro scale or a macro scale. And if you look at it, you know, we've got projects like that going on right now, where whether it's a flip project or, you know, and this flip's actually a good example. With the nails, we don't want to run the backsplash by. We don't want to choose the flooring with this with this investor. That there has to be that relationship between that relationship of trust and and expertise on both sides to be like, hey, you take the money. This is the return I expect or or hope for at least. A hundred percent. Like you know, at the level that we're focusing, 
there's a lot of complexity, but frankly, you're doing this. It's it's the same business. It'll right? boil if you boil it right down. It comes back to the, the same. nuts and bolts are the exactly. same, right? And and I think you. I'll, I'll tell you kind of a quick story. I was in Hamilton because we have a development there. And this, I, this flip I'm referring to is actually in Hamilton. I as keep, well. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Interestingly, so I'm in Hamilton. I'm meeting a guy for lunch, and I'm parked in a parking lot, and I'm walking by, and a young guy comes up to me, and he says you know, Hey, I like your car. Right. So we start talking about my car and he's like, what do you do? So I, I tell him what I do. And he's like, you know what? I'm getting into development myself. I bought a single family home and here's what I'm going to do and all that kind of thing. And as we get into this conversation, he says to me, you know, don't know if you have the time, but every now and then, could I give you a call if I have questions or whatever? And I said, yeah, sure. Right. So I said, no problem. So you know, he took me up on the offer, called me, he bought a property and he was thinking about structure. I helped him with the structure and and all of this to say that really it was the same structure that we use, just overlaid onto a one, you know, single home project. And in this case, he wasn't doing a flip. He was going to kind of not knock it down, but do kind of a deep renovation, almost like a value add type, type of project. And really the same tenants that we would use when we were underwriting a large scale development, a lot of similarities apply over here. So he was able to kind of take the structure and put it into place. He found a capital partner that stepped into the shoes and off he went. Right. And so I think to your point for smaller developers, especially now, because like if you guys have, I'm sure you have, obviously you guys are in touch with the market at a deep level, but like with what's been changing in terms of, you know, politics and government's view that housing supply needs resuscitation and, and we need a lot more supply than we have. Part of the solution is allowing, you know, single unit development and sort of like the missing middle, so to speak, right? So take yeah. cities like Toronto where you have a whole bunch of properties that can be intensified relatively easily and they're not these big large scale towers or big, you know, 200 unit townhouse developments, but it's like a fourplex that can turn into a sixplex into an eightplex and they're thinking about doing that and allowing it as a right, right? So that you don't have to deal with all of the red tape and issues. I think there'll be a huge opportunity for smaller developers now more than ever to be able to go and identify some of those properties and joint venture with homeowners, right? So if you actually, if you're on the execution side and you know how to do this, there's going to be tons of opportunity to put a compelling financial argument in front of a homeowner to be able to create something like that. And at the same time, if you're that homeowner or somebody with some capital, you're going to be able to find a lot of deals and a lot of opportunities. So I think the game's about to change a lot for you know smaller scale developers because the solution for housing, if we want the right type of housing, and you know we're in the business of creating large scale communities, but I'm also I know enough to know that for this city to function for the decades ahead and have the right type of housing, it's not just a question of how many dwellings to how many people. It's the dwellings have to match household formation and how families, you know, what they need, right? So it's a needs-based thing. There are multiple solutions that are required because it's not going to be just, you know, 50-story towers with average size of 600 square feet. That has its place. It's important. We need more of that as well. But at the same time, you know, we need to intensify in other ways to be able to accommodate families. And I think that's where the role of the small developer really comes in. 
Before we move on, I just want to go back to your story for a second because I thought you were, when the guy came up to you and was like, I like your car, what do you do for a living? I thought it was going to go the Wolf of Wall Street route. He's like, <laughs> Yeah, that was us. You show me a paycheck with yeah. that. I will quit my job and I work for you. No, it didn't go that way. He did. He was on his own. <laughs> yeah, that's. it's funny because, you know, we work on a lot of projects like what you're describing in smaller municipalities where they're not looking for high-rise stuff. So their secondary plans call for four stories, six stories, et cetera. And you can go buy with residential debt, even as like an owner-occupier, you can go buy a cash-flowing duplex on a main road in like a new market or Brampton or Pickering. And eventually that'll be a development site. For sure. I mean, like we are going to need more house, period. And it's going to come as we just covered from a multitude of sources, not just the large scale developers. And I think that that does open up opportunities today to on an educated. What I want to see if I had my perfect world is people that can get proper advice when doing that. I think that's a hugely important thing because what I see a lot of is in my business, we see land speculation at times where people are like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy this farm in wherever because one day that's going to be developed, right? And they end up with like a cornfield. No understanding. Forever. Urban boundaries work. Right. And there's a lot of science that goes into development, obviously, as you guys know. So I think that if people get the right advice where they can cover their downside by, to your point, going out and buying something that today provides them with cash flow. And in their worst case scenario, if a development doesn't materialize for whatever the reasons are, even though I think it's going to get easier, not harder. But let's say something kind of went off the rails and you couldn't do a development or there was like a, you know, a snail that lives on that property and there's environmental considerations or wildlife considerations, whatever it is, you have a cash flowing asset. Okay. Well, that's not like the worst thing you could be doing with your money. It's probably one of the best things you could be doing with your money. Right. So if you're going to speculate, you got to look at the downside more so than getting your like eyes wide about the upside. Cause (laughs) yeah, so it's a big deal. And if you look at how some of the biggest development companies have been built they've done tremendous things and they've made a lot of money but they've done it on a as covered a basis as you can possibly imagine right that's what attracted us to this business like when we first started even with plaza corp like the first one of the first and probably like third or fourth but like one of the things we bought was we bought a property in liberty village and it was it ended up being i think 55 65 and 75 east liberty and then Western Battery. So there's four towers. Anyway, we bought the two sites, all cash. I think at the time we paid like, I don't know, the equivalent of 30 bucks a billable foot, which is like a dream, right? Well, that was the old like train yard. Yeah. Well, there was like nothing there. Like at, at the time, I remember when we, it, it sort of exceeded the capacity that we had of our own capital, obviously. I think the, the acquisition was 30 million bucks. So we had raised some capital from, that was kind of the, beginning of us going out and raising money from more than just family and friends. But we got a, at the time, what was called a limited market dealer's license today. It's an exempt market dealers and Graybrook security. So if you think about what Graybrook is today, you have Graybrook Capital, which is kind of the master company. And that houses some of our healthcare assets, but owns Graybrook Realty and Graybrook Securities. For all intents and purposes, it's the same company as it's run. But one side deals with the capital and, and investors and the other side deals with our acquisitions and development. And that Graybrook Securities business was effectively what enabled us to go out and raise capital from individuals and institutions. It's we're regulated by every securities commission in Canada, the SEC in the US, because we operate in the US as well. And effectively, you know, that acquisition in Liberty Village at the time, we bought 
for 30 million bucks debt free. So the way we looked at our downside is like, okay, I'm pretty sure given the course and speed of the city, what we think of the macro of Toronto and housing and all these things, that people will probably want to live in this area. It's a bit cheaper than King West Village at the time, you know, two blocks up the street. So ultimately, we think that there's going to be a lot of demand here. And what could go wrong? I mean, I own a big piece of dirt and I have no debt on it. And the taxes are like a fraction of the value, right? So you look at your coverage there and you can feel pretty good about it. So obviously, a development materialized and it was very successful development. But at the end of the day, we felt pretty good about just owning the dirt. Yeah. So let's just look at like those same principles that you and Graybrook and all the intelligent people here go like when you're picking a property, whether it's a piece of dirt or an existing asset that you plan on value adding. It's literally all the same principles, no matter if it's one single family or a duplex or, you know, 10 acres of what Liberty Village is sitting on now kind of thing. For sure. I think that the, again, like if I were to kind of characterize it like this, the framework is the same. You have to look at the same buckets of risk. Yeah. So what, what are the buckets of risk? What are we looking at? Yeah. So I think, you know, just to kind of finish the first point, the difference, and this is kind of the big difference between the large scale and sort of smaller scale is generally on the smaller scale, you're not going to take as much zoning risk, right? So most of what you buy that's large scale requires zoning bylaw amendments and they're going to be complicated. So that process in and of itself requires a lot of diligence. So similarly, if you're buying just a single family home and you plan to do something on it, you're probably not having to do the same level of planning diligence, right? You should obviously understand from a planning perspective what's permitted, what's going to get through a zoning process, right? Because anytime you modify anything, you have to go through a committee of adjustments or whatever. You should really know that process, but it's generally not going to be as complex as building a big tower or a master plan community. And even in that, at a large scale, they're very different considerations. So when we're doing something here, let's say, for example, in the city of Toronto and you're building a tower, that is going to have less environmental consideration other than certain, you know, obviously making sure that below the soil is clean and, and that you have dealt with whatever needs to be dealt with. But it's mainly going to be related to what's established in the community and all of the various planning studies that have been done by the city. So you have to really understand what's available because developers can shoot themselves in the foot if they get too aggressive on what it is they think they can accomplish, right? And land value, and this is why when you're valuing land for development, it is a very difficult process if you know what you're doing. And I say that because in real estate, by and large, people use comparable analysis the most, right? So they'll sit there and say, well, this piece of dirt was a buck, so this next door piece of dirt should be worth a buck. And generally, that's pretty accurate if you're buying like a building or a plaza. Like there's comparables are very valuable and useful. In development, there can be remarkable differences site to site, block to block based on what it is that you can do with that site and what the limitations could be with that site. And all of that drastically alters the price, right? If you know what you're doing, right? So if you and I are both looking at a site and we want to put a 25-story tower, theoretically, we should be able to pay the same amount of money for that site. But if my site has certain limitations that, you know, for example, you can't cast a shadow over a park, which means that you can't go as high, or there are inefficiencies that require a smaller floor plate, which then has more complexities in construction, it's going to cost you more to build it. We have a site, for example, next door to our office here, which it's on a 7,500 square foot floor plate and it's zoned for a 40-story tower. And you might look at a 40-story tower on a 15,000 square foot floor plate and assume that those would cost you the same amount of money to build. 
And that's not the case. This 7,500 square foot floor plate comes with considerable premiums because you're working in very tight spaces. Mm -hmm. For example, in the underground parking, you can't do just very basic corkscrew. You have to put mechanical parking in place. Like, so there's a whole bunch of things that unless you're doing your diligence and you're just looking at it and saying, oh, wow, the zoning says 40 stories and this says 40 stories, I can pay a buck for both of these sites. So the devil's always in the details. So when we look at an acquisition, for example, of land, we start with planning diligence, obviously. That goes into a full costing, right? Because you simply can't guess, right? You have to take that planning work and sit there and say, okay, I believe that I can achieve 40 stories. And that we're all comfortable. I mean, you never know 100% because that process is always an iterative process, not only politically with the community. There's a whole bunch of things that have to happen for you to ultimately agree, but you can get a, a pretty good idea of what you can accomplish conservatively. Once you've achieved that, you need to basically build out an entire pro forma. So we'll hire cost consultants, we'll hire architects, we will do all of that. That's why the diligence period from the time we sort of tie down a property and the time we go firm can be anywhere between 45 and 60 days. And we'll probably spend about fifty to $60,000 in professional fees to be able to go through the planning diligence and do a full costing analysis so that we can actually arrive at what we should be paying for that land without any surprises down the road, right? And I think that the difference being on a smaller scale, because the planning considerations are probably less of an issue, it's not going to be all that difficult to do that part of the work. And you can probably hire a consultant if you're not a do-it-yourselfer and, you know, for relatively low commitment, the guy can tell you what it's going to cost to do the renovation work or the scope of work that you're going to need to accomplish. And then you can hire competent real estate agents that can help you price, right? And then you do your math there and build your pro forma. So the framework, like you said, is the same framework. It's just the layers of complexity are obviously a lot deeper when it comes to larger scale things. If you're spending 60 days and $50,000 analyzing a duplex. Yeah, you, it's not going to work. It's, it's not going to work, right? But yeah, but all to say that the buckets and the framework are relatively similar. It's just the, you know, scope and, and complexity. Well, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I love some of the points you brought up, like even just the floor plate and trying to, you know, get the cement trucks on Young Street or something like that, you know, downtown Vancouver, any, any downtown across the country having a, you know, constant cement trucks in and out kind of thing, right? Like there's all this planning and underwriting and due diligence that goes into, into these large scale projects. And, and, and you have to go all the way, like cement trucks, cranes, like there needs to be clearance and it needs to swing. And frankly, maybe not a lot of people know this kind of stuff, but like if you own the land, you own the air above it in most cases. And I can't just swing my crane over your land without some sort of agreement between me and my neighbor to say that I can do that. There's a lot that goes into this. And so when you're buying something, if you're buying it off market, then we're doing all that diligence primarily ourselves. When it's a broker transaction, like a lot of times a landowner will hire a broker to, to sell their land and they'll go out to market. The package is is there for you, but we diligence the package. So it's, I mean, most reputable firms will have pretty good diligence binders. So they're not just going to make things up. It's accurate, but we hire our own teams of consultants to be able to make sure that because development in this case, whether it's high rise or low rise, because the same principles apply with a low rise site, right? You're buying a farm. Okay, great. How much of it's developable? Well, has the 
TRCA, which is kind of the conservation authority, have they staked it? Are there wetland considerations? Are there floodplain considerations? Like, what are the geotechnicals like? Are they environmental? Are there wetlands? Is there a joke, but I'm serious. Is there a bird that migrates there during, you know, from April to June where you can't do any construction? And how does that affect your pro forma? Because that's extra time and extra cost and all these things. So going into these things blindly is the worst thing you can do. I think that people at a smaller scale that are interested in doing this on a one-off, my biggest piece of advice I give any of them is to get advice, right? Like if you're a do-it-yourselfer, it doesn't literally mean do-it-yourself. It means that, yeah, you're kind of the quarterback, but you're quarterbacking people that can give you the right advice. You need that team. 100%. The power team, whether it's, you know, 60 people here that are extremely intelligent, underwriting multi-million dollar deals, or if it's just a good lawyer, good realtor, good mortgage agent, good contractor. And I think people's inclination, not everybody, but, you know, some people that, because you're hesitant to spec cost, right? So you're always like, okay, like, you know, if I do it myself, then I'm going to save myself 5,000 bucks or whatever. And the line I always use is like, you're not going to know this till the end, but the amount of money you spent is many multiples less than what it would have cost you making several mistakes along the way, right? Like, so like people should keep that in mind if they're serious about getting into this business and they're not just kind of looking at it as a fair weather type, you know, one-off. You mentioned like early on in that thought that a lot of this is to, you know, with the effort of, of mitigating that downside risk, right? And, and understanding what the downside looks like by comparison to the upside. Cause a lot of people, you know, especially in, in housing or small cap investment, there's a ton of speculation, right? Like landowners, yeah, maybe a little bit more sophisticated. So you, you're less likely to see it being a massive piece of the market. You still see it. What are the downside factors right now that you're looking at that? the individual investor should be looking at in the market. I know, you know, you hear a lot about rates continuing to go up. You know, we're staring down the barrel of a recession potentially. China's real estate market is not doing exceptionally well. I guess, you know, broadly, like, are you considering all of these factors and how? And then also, you know, what advice do you have for other individuals on how to look at them, but also how to mitigate, right? Because I would say, you know, with that risk also comes a lot of opportunity, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, Everything you've said is a, is a huge consideration. I mean, we spend a disproportional amount of our time these days trying to forecast and, and some of these things you just can't forecast, right? What we do know, I think, is the interest rate outlook looks like continued tightening, which I think is needed. So, I think we can all agree that sometime, you know, the next 12 to 24 months is going to be a period of higher interest rates than we've seen historically and how quickly they come down and, and what sort of impact that has in between. We don't know the answers to that, but I think we can bet on higher interest rates than we've seen over the past few years for at least you know 12 months, if not longer. That's how we're looking at it. Now, geopolitically, there's a bunch of things we can't control. One of the tricky things with interest rate right now and why the Bank of Canada, I think, and the Fed in the US are walking a very fine line that Truthfully, if I'm being honest, I don't know that they can really walk effectively. And it's not a slight on their capabilities. It's that the vast majority of the drivers of what is causing inflation are hugely out of their control. They're not demand-driven levers. They're all supply-driven levers, whether it's geopolitical tension that's causing instability in fuel prices and, and food prices, or whether it's supply chain as a result of what you know COVID and COVID policies have done to different parts of the world. All of these things are being handed. There are a set of conditions that are being handed to officials to then try to mitigate. And the only lever they have is 
consumers and how can I either increase the money supply or decrease the money supply that's circulating. So interest rates are your only variable that you can control. But the problem is, is that you're not fixing the problem. You're just sort of trying not to exacerbate it. And in doing that, you can overshoot quite easily. And then if these resolve, you're going to have the opposite problem. And I think that that is, I'm not going to say likely, but it's a probable or you know certainly a scenario that can happen. So what we're trying to do to prepare and where we spend the vast majority of our time is, is looking at sensitivities in our existing portfolio. So I'll break it up into two answers and, and then I'll get to your actual question. The portfolio that we have that exists, we have projects that are in different stages. The important thing is to look at and forecast conditions ahead and make sure that that's all incorporated into your modeling and then be ready to make decisions. So we had a session yesterday, for example, that was a five hour long afternoon session to go through part of our portfolio that we think may have risk with regard to you know units closing for example like people bought units at the absolute peak of the market and you know maybe they and not because they want to bail cuz they're speculators but you know maybe they can get a mortgage maybe they can't maybe they you know the appraisals on those homes are going to look different than the APS that they signed we don't know if any of these will materialize but we have to be ready for them and understand where we have vulnerabilities and then and then be ready to make decisions around them so that's what we're doing with our active portfolio with new acquisitions, it hasn't really changed much at all. And this is kind of getting to the root of your question and what I think good advice is for people. Our strategy hasn't changed even a little bit. And I get that question a lot from investors almost like perplexed. Like, how on earth has your strategy not changed? Like, look at this stuff that's happening, you know, out there in the world. It has to have changed a little bit. My answer back to them is like, you know, real estate is inherently a long-term business. Like, you're not buying any type of real estate usually for the purposes of holding it for like eight months. Generally speaking, there's a lot of friction in the model. It just doesn't make a lot of, you shouldn't be, right? I mean, there's people that are speculators, but there's, they're specifically speculators. I actually spend a lot of time. I'm on a couple committees at the provincial government level and I was participating in, in one of the federal ones. I spent a lot of time trying to distinguish between investors and speculators for the purposes of policy because they tend to lump everything into like, oh, like investors are bad for the market. I'm like, that's absolutely incorrect. In fact, if you took investors out of the market or created a massive disincentive for investors, whatever problem you think you have now, multiply it by like 50 when it comes to housing supply and all that kind of thing. So speculation, you're right. You should probably put some rules in place to limit speculation. But if that starts to bleed into creating disincentive for investors, you're going to have a big problem because the vast majority of our rental supply comes from investors. The vast majority of the type of housing that we're going to need comes from investors. So I think they're making those connections. But the point is, is that our investment strategy, because it's not a short-term speculative strategy, really hasn't changed a lot. And that's because we try to... And you have to do this. You kind of got to see through all the crap and look at today as a period in time. Just like 2007 and 8 was a period in time. And if you believe in the macro context of the markets you're investing in, whether they're Toronto, anywhere else in Canada, in the US, then your strategy may tweak, but it shouldn't fundamentally change all that much, right? And I think that for us, that is something that we have to focus on because human nature is you get distracted by like all the stuff that's happening. And then you feel like you have to change. But then you sit there and you look and you're like, well, I'm buying like, for example, we just acquired a condo site on a subway line in Etobicoke, right? It's like right on a hub, right on a subway line. Do I want to launch sales right this second? No. 
But do I want to own that condo site at the price I paid for it, knowing that whether it's six months from now, 12 months from now, 18 months from now, or 24 months from now, there's probably going to be a need for condo sites on a subway line. Now, if all of a sudden the GTA reversed course and all of a sudden immigration stopped or reversed and we had net migration outward like New York City, for example, and approvals became the easiest thing, like good news, you know, you mail in a a checkbox and you can do it. It's Texas now. Right. Okay. All of a sudden that dynamic fundamentally changes and you might have an oversupplied market relative to the demand and now you have a problem. That's not happening. No. Okay. So if you believe that macro context isn't going to reverse, then you're not making a decision necessarily for today. And I think that the advice that I would give to any individual who's investing in the real estate market in Canada and in, you know, I can't speak to every municipality, but certainly in ones that are more densely populated, like the Toronto's, the Vancouver's, Montreal's, is to really understand the macro and just don't get distracted. Like you need to have result. The hardest thing right now is to be contrarian or to look past the panic. And it's not just the real estate market. Look at the stock market. It's like literally like we're in a bull market again. Like you actually think we're in a bull market? Like just because the market's up the last like two weeks, we've had a bit of a run. Like of course it's going to get pounded in the next two months. Like and then when, you know, two years later when we look backwards, we'll be like, oh, that was so predictable. But if you look at cap, equity markets are always the best indicator for me of how psychology works because particularly mutual funds, because if you look at mutual fund charts and measuring their sort of inflows and outflows, they're at their absolute peak inflow when the markets are the highest they've ever been. And then their absolute peak outflow when the markets are getting decimated. That's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. But people inherently, you know, you get nervous, anxious, you panic. And you feel like, you know, you're getting pelted with all this information and you almost feel like, man, I feel stupid if I'm buying a stock now because like, oh my God, like everybody's telling me that's a dumb move. Well, maybe not. But to buy the right stock, you got to understand the fundamentals of that company and whether it's a meme stock like AMC or if it's got like a proper company that's going to recover and and perform again. And real estate's no different. And I feel like if people, it's hard to do. But you really have to stay true to what your investment thesis was. And if it was a good thesis to begin with, it should withstand the test of time and any given point. Yeah, this is, I mean, literally everything you're saying is, is without a risk of repeating myself from other podcasts, it's all the same stuff we, we talk about, right? Go in, stick to your guns, build out the best add value solution you can. And as a backup, have other exit strategies. 100%. Right? So like, what's the worst case scenario if we don't get the, I mean, we can talk about the Hamilton deal openly. We bought it at the right price off market. We um, bought it at the right time too. Like we bought it early, but we closed with equity and then the equity got destroyed pretty quickly. Yeah. So, so on we yeah. on paper, right? So what we've done is we numerous times went back and underwrote it several different ways. What if this happens? What if this happens? You know, keeping the investor informed and basically hold on for dear life, stuck with the best possible option, which was build at the best product possible. If we don't get the sale price we do when we go to market in a few weeks, we know that we will crush it as an Airbnb or as a short-term rental, right? So obviously from a economies of scale, you know, this to times a hundred with what you're talking about. But again, it, the thing I love about real estate is that it's the exact same concepts, yeah. right? Obviously it gets a lot more complicated yeah. and the zoning changes and the money aspect changes and everything changes, but it really boils down to those simple principles. And that was a great interview, tons of value, you know, I think my biggest takeaway would be that investing strategies don't seem to change, you know, whether it's your first duplex or your 50th, 
your first major land deal or development, the principles remain the same. And I think a few of those principles are always buy good deals, stick to your original strategy, no matter what the market is doing. You should always have multiple exit strategies going into whatever project you're entering. And really, it's about finding the right partners. So I had a ton of fun interviewing Sasha. I know you did as well, Dan. I think we're probably going to try to do a few more guests. So if there's anyone out there that is listening that wants to hear someone specifically, reach out. Dan and I will track them down and convince them to come on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. I felt it was a really good interview. And I just like introducing the concept of Greybrook and of other opportunities outside of direct investing in real estate. Because I mean, eventually, look, one of the reasons that all of us are building real estate portfolios is because we want to have financial freedom at some point in our lives, I think. I don't think we're doing it because we want to be managing properties until we die. And so, you know, it's interesting because I know a lot of wealthy people who invest in real estate through private equity vehicles just like this. And a lot of those people actually made their money in real estate. But at a certain point, you don't want to be actively managing anymore. And so the reason that high net worth individuals and people in family offices use vehicles like that is because it offers a passive approach to investing in quality hard assets, which typically do require active management. So it gets rid of that one of the big pain points. It allows you to diversify across different housing products. So either through geography or different type of property. So, you know, if you're an investor in, in Calgary or, you know, one of our listeners out in, in Newfoundland and you want to fund a development project in a luxury high rise in Toronto, you can do that through a vehicle like this. You probably couldn't do it without a vehicle like this. I don't think, no offense intended mm-hmm. to our listeners, but I certainly couldn't go and build a luxury high rise tower myself. And it helps you or it allows you to partner with major developers. You know, if you're putting your money into the deals like this, you get to say that you actually funded deals where you see some of those massive names in Canadian real estate. And the coolest part I would say, especially for our listeners, those who are, you know, just starting their journey in the real estate space, a lot of people probably have money saved in an RRSP or a TFSA or some sort of other registered investment account. Because of the way that these guys are securitized, you can actually use those vehicles to invest directly into those real estate projects through your RRSP or TFSA. So you get a little bit of the tax advantage and you can do it kind of with smaller amounts. It's a pretty cool way to get exposure to real estate development projects. So if you're interested in doing that, send us an email. We'll connect you with their team. We're hoping to have them back in the future to actually talk more specifically about the deals that they're working on and analyze them the way that we analyze deals here on the podcast and even just present opportunities for our listeners to potentially invest in these deals when they're giving us those return metrics and the analysis on the deals that they're working on. So... Yeah, I love it. I think there's a ton of value to look at all the options we have out there. And, and funny little anecdote, I'm actually recording this from Liberty Village from a Greybrook development that actually was partnered with a major developer. So I'm sitting in one of their investments currently. I think that's it. We hope everyone enjoyed our first interview episode. We had a ton of fun and found it very valuable. Again, if you want anyone specific, reach out, tell us who you want. We'll get them on the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you every Tuesday and Friday. Until next time. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. 
Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.